Um, Tony Ellswick is our guest preacher for today. Uh, Tony and his wife, Amber, we've, we've mentioned them earlier in the service, spent some time with them uh, over the last couple of days, and, and that will continue uh, even into tomorrow. Um, I'm not going to speak uh, and give too much detail uh, about what Tony and Amber are up to and have been up to the last couple of years. I think they'll probably tell that story uh, better than I might, um, but we are thrilled to have y'all with us. And we'll look forward to uh, you opening up God's Word to us. So come ahead, Tony. Thank you. It is a uh, pleasure to be here today and to be able to bring the Word. Uh, I'll give you a little description of our work before, uh, before we get into the Word. Uh, we've been in Nicaragua for uh, three years now. So we moved there uh, about three and a half years ago. Didn't know any Spanish uh, at all, so I could ask, where is the bathroom? But when somebody gave me directions to the bathroom, totally lost, right? So that's where I was, and uh, so that was an interesting experience. It was like being a child again, because I didn't understand anything anybody was saying, you know? Like, like, are you using a big word, or is this just a normal word? Are you angry with me? Are you laughing at me? I, you couldn't understand context, and so it was, it was a little bit difficult, but I was excited uh, after being there for about four or five months to be able to give my first sermon in Spanish, but my Spanish wasn't good enough to, uh, to do that yet. So what I did was I wrote it out in English, and then I had it translated to Spanish. And so then I just read it in Spanish, but I didn't actually know all the time what I was saying. I just had like a, like a general idea. Uh, so at one point in the sermon, I wanted to say, Jesus died for your sin. The word for sin is pecado, but the word I said was pescado, which means fish. So, so Jesus died for your fish, and don't know if I want to you know, defend that theologically, but uh, so there is a town in Nicaragua that knows me as Tony Pescado. I don't mind too much. I think it sounds kind of tough, like an Italian mobster, Tony the Fish. So... But I'm grateful that uh, my Spanish has improved. Still got some ways to go, but it has uh, improved uh, from that. So, so eventually my Spanish got better. We had our kickoff event about two years ago or two Novembers ago. And uh, we have our ministry in several different phases. So the first phase we do, we describe it as theological triage. So the average uh, pastor in Nicaragua has a fifth grade education. Uh, no theological training whatsoever. No pastoral training whatsoever. Uh, by comparison... You're in the PCA, it's almost all master's degrees, and in the United States, that's pretty common that the pastor would have a master's degree, and if they don't, there's all sorts of resources in English for them to learn and to study the passages, uh, most of which aren't available in Spanish, and those that are available in Spanish are even out of reach for the poor Nicaraguan um, pastors, uh, because they're just too expensive, or they're, you know, you need internet or, or something like that, and a lot of them don't have that. So what we do is theological triage where we set up uh, community-based theological cohorts where they study a course called Third Millennium Ministries, which is kind of like History Channel documentaries for uh, theology. And so we have those in different groups, and it's been going for two years now. We have six groups uh, with about 40 students, and uh, we had eight people graduate uh, two years ago. That's actually when uh, you guys came down and got to participate in the graduation. Uh, so that was a big, big deal. Uh, also, we started our phase two stuff in May last year, which is a church planner training, 
uh, practical pastoral skills, which is a pastor's retreat. We bring them to uh, every three months uh, for the, over two years, and there's about ten guys who participate in that. Uh, but we think women are important as well, and uh, you know, in Nicaragua, sometimes the marriages aren't uh, as strong as you'd like, typically in the United States. So there are cases where we've heard about where pastors are planting churches or being pastors, and the wife is a pastor's wife but doesn't know it because uh, they're just not that close, I guess. I don't know. It's kind of crazy. So we wanted to make sure that they, they knew that they were pastor's wives and also that they were getting trained and equipped as well because that's a big burden on women. And uh, so we bring them to every other pastor's conference that we have. And uh, it was really a great testimony. The last one we had, one of the pastors said, uh, you care more about our wives and kids than our own denominations do. And that was a pretty powerful statement to me because that's what we want to do. We want to bring them good theology, but we want to bring them good practice and gospel dynamics as well. And the last thing that we're doing is we're establishing a Presbyterian denomination in Nicaragua. So we're working to create the standards for that. We had three men in February come under care, uh, which means that they started the formal process uh, towards pursuing ordination. And so, so we're really excited about everything that the Lord is doing uh, in Nicaragua and through our ministry. Uh, there is a lot of unrest right now. You might have seen in the news. Uh, so I would ask you to pray for Nicaragua and specifically I want you to pray for Irving uh, and his family. So uh, I know there's like if you have a pen or there's pencils and a pews, if you can write his name Irving. Uh, he's our administrator. He's actually taking care of the theological cohorts while we're in the States. Uh, his cousin died last Sunday uh, in the protests. And so uh, it is uh, some violent protests that happen in certain areas. So please be praying for them and pray specifically for Irving and his family. Uh, so we, we were home uh, when all that happened. We're home on a scheduled trip uh, back to visit our churches. Uh, and so we hope to return soon. But we're a bit homesick. So I want to teach you a little call and response, a little Latin American call and response uh, that will help me feel more at home. Uh, so it's pretty typical in Nicaragua and in, and in Latin America in general, but it goes like this. Uh, the pastor will say, ¿Quién vive? Which means who lives. And the response is, Cristo, which is Christ. Let's try it. ¿Quién vive? Cristo. Wow. All right. Man. It, it almost feels like I'm not at a Presbyterian church. I mean, that's <laughs> it's nice. All right. And then the next one is a su nombre, which is to his name. And the answer is Gloria, which is glory. So, a su nombre. Gloria. ¿Quién vive? A su nombre. Gloria. Gloria. All right, that's good. I like that. So that is going to come up later because they don't do it uh, necessarily in liturgy. They do it in the sermon. So you just got to be on your toes for that. Um, So we'll see. I have hopes for you guys, though, because you guys were really engaged in that. Um, so we decided to be missionaries um, about five years ago. Before that, I was an accountant, which was interesting because I'm not particularly good at numbers um, or details. And so uh, everything else though, in the world of accounting, I was pretty good at. Uh, so, so it worked out. Uh, and we decided to be missionaries, and we started going around and, and raising support and telling people our stories and telling people that we're going to, you know, leave the cubicles behind, leave the fluorescent lights behind, and we're going to move to the third world. We're going to be training pastors. And I felt like I was bragging 
But technically, I don't know if it's bragging if no one's jealous of you. And, and so the general response was, weird people do weird things, right? Like, okay, that's, that's great for you. And, and sometimes we would get really odd questions like, are you going to take your kids with you? I thought, yeah, I mean, we're not, we're not sending them to boarding school. I mean, tuition at Hogwarts is pretty high. And on a missionary salary, you know, like, so... Uh, but they asked those type of questions because they had no real paradigm to understand what we were doing. And so they're just trying to grasp for, you know, what do you do, what do, you do with your kids? Do you take them to the third world with you? And uh, there's this idea that, that we're weird. We're weird for doing it. It's not normal. It's not what normal people do. And, and we're weird as missionaries, but you're all weird too just for being Christians and for coming to church. Right? I mean, the fact that you woke up and come here on Sundays... When you could be sleeping in, right, that, that's weird, right? The fact that you give money to the church, money that you could be using for other things, right, that's, that's weird. Normal people, they don't, they don't do that. The fact that you wake up in the mornings to read your Bible, when you could sleep a little longer, hit the snooze a little bit more, right, that's, that's weird. Normal people don't do that. And so there's a sense among Christians, right, that we're weird and different from uh, the culture at large. When Billy Graham died... Um, you know, earlier this year, there was a lot of tributes to him, and I saw this one where he was uh, doing an interview with Woody Allen, and, uh, and that was kind of interesting because in any context where Woody Allen isn't the weirdo, that's, that's kind of uncomfortable, that's a little weird, right, because he's, he's an odd guy, but, but everybody was very respectful to, to Billy Graham, and they, but they would ask him questions, you know, do you really believe the Bible's true, do you really believe you, you should wait till you're married, do you really, do you really believe this stuff? And the attitude was that he was you know, kind of a lovable eccentric, right? That he's, he's okay, but he's a bit odd. Uh, and then when he passed away, you know, there's a lot of nice tributes to him, but there was a lot of anger as well. I don't know if you saw any of that, but there's a lot of stuff on, on Twitter and social media that was like, good riddance. Right? I'm glad he's gone. And you think, man, if they didn't like Billy Graham, what chance, chance do I have, right? I'm... Not as nice as he is. It reminds me of what Jesus says. They persecute me, they're going to persecute you, right? Because we're no Jesus. And what's happened in our culture in a lot of ways is that there's been this shift where we're the lovable eccentrics, and now there's people who, who think we're a bit dangerous and, you know, scared of us. And, and you hear some of these things that, that people say, and what we found, you know, visiting around in different churches is that people have low morale. Uh, and people, Christians, a lot of times are feeling ashamed. And uh, you know, they feel the pressure of what the culture and society says about them. And so that's why I chose this passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Because uh, there's a lot of good news in here. And I think that the Corinthians were going through some similar stuff. Uh, they were being persecuted. At this point, they weren't being persecuted to, to death, like what, we, what we'll see you know, later on happens in church history, but they are facing a lot of resistance. Uh, you know, they're being ostracized from their families and from their jobs. And so they're trying to deal with all this. And at the same time, uh, they're, they're being a bit confused about theology and about what's going on. And so we're going to see that in verse 16. Uh, I'm going to read from 16 to 19 now. It says this, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, 
We are of all people most to be pitied. He says we're to be pitied. What was happening was people were dying and they knew Jesus rose three days later. Right? And so, so they were wondering, when are we going to be raised? Right? When's my aunt who just died? When is she going to be raised? And they're waiting and they're waiting and they're not, nobody's being raised from the dead yet. And so they're starting to question, well, maybe Christianity is only for this life. And what Paul's saying is if that's true, then we're just a bunch of fools. This is just a room of fools, right? We're all to be pitied. And the Corinthians as well. Why? Because they're giving up stuff from their faith that has no, no bearing. It, has, it goes nowhere. They're being persecuted for nothing. If there's no hope in, in the next life, if it's just for this life only, then you should have just slept in today. Shouldn't have given anything in the offering. Right? Because we're just, we're just to be pitied. But Paul, of course, he saw the resurrected Christ. He knew this, that, that it's not true that he didn't get raised. And so he says, starting in verse 20, this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order... Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is, expected, he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. all right, we're going we're gonna to pull out three things from this, this, this section and then do some application. And the, the reality is, is I want you to, in examining the scripture, to get this sense and the reality that we should feel victorious. Right, that there's, there's nothing about our faith that we should be ashamed of, no matter what the culture says. Rather than being ashamed, we should feel victorious. So the first reason why we should feel victorious is because Christ is the only way to salvation. Now, if you look at this passage in verse you know, 28, it, the, the last part of this passage it gets a little difficult to understand because it's like, he who is subjected to him, who is subjected to him, is not subjected. And so you, you almost want like a flow chart to kind of understand who's, who's being subjected to who here. Um, and so the reality that, that what all this boils down to is the idea, um, the theological term for that is economic trinity. So you can say economic trinity. All right, so it's economic trinity. So if you don't know what that is, uh, as Christians, we all believe in the trinity, right, that there's one God and three persons, uh, same in substance, equal in power and glory, right? And, but then we also know that each person of the trinity, they operate differently uh, in our redemption. And so the economic trinity is just the, the term used to describe that. And so, so Jesus' role in that is that he's our redeemer, right? He's the one who comes down and who pays the price for us. So, so there's these different roles, and we, we see that in the Gospels all the time where Jesus is talking about his relationship to the Father, and I only, I only say what the Father tells me or what I hear the Father say, and that's what that's talking to about. It's talking about this reality, that Christ is the only way, that the whole purpose of, of the way uh, you know, salvation was set, set up out 
was so that Christ would be the only way, the focal point and the center of our salvation. We see that in verse 22 where it says um, that in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. That word first fruits, that doesn't just mean chronological order, that he was the first. I mean, there's some of that in there, but that's not all of it. it what it's referring to is, is in Leviticus, there was this law, right, that if you were a farmer and you had a fruit tree, you would give your first fruits as a sacrifice, right? If you had a cow, you'd give the first, the first baby cow, right, to, as a sacrifice, as the first fruits. And because of that sacrifice, all the other fruit, all the other baby cows, everything else is considered holy and counted as, as sa- uh, sanctified because of the sacrifice of the first fruits. And so what it's is that Christ is our first fruit. So we are considered holy, righteous, and get resurrection because of Christ. Because Christ is the only way for salvation. In verse 22 it says this, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This can get confusing for people because you know, we know everybody has sin and everybody dies. And so, so some people look at a passage like this and say, well, then shouldn't everybody receive eternal life from Christ? And we know that that's not the case uh, because Paul talks all over the place about how, how the Christ, you, know, you have to accept Christ, you have to be exclusively in that. He talks about the curse that's has under the Jews and stuff. And so, so we know that's not the case. So, but what's the point here then? The point is that Christ is the focal point of our resurrection. He's the, he is the way that we get saved. So everyone who has sin and death, you have it because of Adam. So when you get to heaven, you can talk to him, right? You got, if you don't like that, bring up with him. But everybody who has resurrection and new life, you have it because of Christ. So we see in this passage, first reason why we should feel victorious in our faith is because Christ is the only way for salvation. The second reason why you should feel victorious is because Christ is reigning now. Christ is reigning now. Look at verse 25. It says this, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The picture here is that Christ is now reigning spiritually through the church. And as the gospel goes to new places, into new countries, into new lands, what we're doing is we're liberating occupied territory. The whole world belongs to Christ, but there are people without witness. So as the church grows and goes to new places, this is what we see. He is reigning until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And we have enough history now to be able to see this tangibly, how this has worked out in history. So we know that the New Testament, the Christian faith, the you know, church started in, in Israel, and then it moves into North Africa and into Southern Europe, eventually turning north and going into all of Europe, and then going to the New World. And so by 1800, uh, 99% of the world's Christians lived in North America or Europe. 99%. And then that was the start of the modern missionary movement. So missionaries started going throughout all the world. The gospel started spreading, liberating occupied territory. So that now, now 77% of the world's Christians live outside of North America and Europe. And the cynic might say, well, that's just because Europe's, you know, Christianity's gone down in Europe. It's gone down you know, in North America. And so maybe that accounts for the difference. But we know that's not the case. 
Because we see that not only is it growing geographically, it's growing as a percentage of the population. In AD 100, there was 360 unbelievers to every one practicing Christian. By 1900, that number was 21 to 1. By 1970, that number was 13 to 1. By 2010, that number was 7 to 1. So what do we see? We see this reality is coming true. Christ is reigning. He's victorious. And he's liberating the occupied territory, putting all his enemies under his feet. So you should feel victorious because Christ is the only way for salvation. And you should feel victorious because Christ is reigning now. And you should feel victorious because Christianity is a force of good in the world. So in January, there was a big flu epidemic, at least in Florida. Was, did it hit here? Anybody here have the flu? Raise your hand if you had the flu this year. All right, yeah. Good, good, good amount of people with the flu. So we got it. So we came for Christmas. We took it home as a souvenir. Uh, so all six of us uh, rang in the new year sick with the flu. And if you're thinking maybe you should try that next year, you shouldn't. It is no fun. So all parents and kids sick at the same time. So we put a bare mattress in. The kids were all in bed. We were in bed. So we were all in the same room. Uh, Amber and I, we just kind of like fall out of bed, crawl to them, take their temperature, get medicine, crawl back into bed. I mean, it was... It was horrible. Amber said it the best. She said, we were like the grandparents in Willy Wonka. You know, they always stay in bed. That's, that's who we were for a week. It was horrible. A few weeks later, we had our church planner conference. And, and I like to start off our church planner conferences talking about the 1040 window. If you don't know what the, that is, that's the area of the world that's least evangelized. So geographically, it's 1040 uh, latitude. And so talking about the 1040 window. And what I was telling them was this was I'm not here in Nicaragua just so that Nicaragua gets better churches. I mean, I want that. I want you to have better churches, but that's not why I'm doing it. What I'm doing it for is so that when you get better churches, you can train missionaries, and you can send them to the 1040 window and start evangelizing the 1040 window because Jesus says when the gospel goes to all the world, then he's going to come back. So you go to the 1040 window, Jesus returns, right? Death is defeated, and I don't have to get sick again, right? I mean, it all circles back to me. Um, and that's what it's talking about, verse 26, when it says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's talking about not just death, but also everything wrapped up in death, sickness and disease and sadness. One day that's all going away. And what we see, which is kind of interesting, is that already as Christianity moves out as a light into the world, we see some of this darkness pushed back, and we see some of this coming true, too. If you don't believe me, think about this. I want you to think about what is the worst thing a person can do, right? What is, what is the worst sins that you can think of, the worst crimes? And here's the reality. For the majority of the history of the world, whatever it is that you thought about, whatever it is that came to your mind, was not only practiced and accepted, but oftentimes celebrated. So, so you think about murder? Well, it was commonplace throughout history that roving bands would go into little villages, rape, kill, pillage, right? And the question wasn't, is this morally okay? The question was, how do I get more power to protect myself and to take their stuff and to kill their people? Think about human trafficking, 
All your favorite Greek philosophers, knee-deep in human trafficking with children. It was all disgusting. That's what symposiums were. It was all celebrated and practiced. You think about slavery. You know, in the Roman world, there was slavery widespread throughout all the ancient world. But when a person got free, oftentimes... They didn't go and form an uh, abolition movement, right? They weren't nobody trying, was trying to free the slaves. What they would do when they were free is they would try to own more slaves because that was their status and their power. Nobody was questioning the morality of it. Everybody was just accepting it. And that's the famous one is, is, is what people used to do with unwanted children, right? They had a baby. They didn't want it. They would just throw it out in the trash, and Christians would go, and they would, they would save the babies. And nobody was, was trying to you know, do anything to stop those practices. It was all considered fine and normal. So what changed? Why can we not fathom that now? What changed? Christianity came. Christians went out as light in the darkness. They pushed back the darkness with their witness. And so now the people who mock Christianity and who mock you, look down on you for their faith, they do that while at the same time benefiting from the light that they hate. Because the world's a better place because of Christianity. We're going to see that in, in Nicaragua. There's this volcano called uh, Messiah Volcano. And it's not Messiah like Jesus Messiah. It's an Indian word. And uh, if you want to know what it means, I can make something up because I don't, you know, I don't know. Nobody else really knows, but I can make it up if you want. Uh, and so, so this, this volcano, you can actually go right up to the edge of the volcano and you can look down. And there's sometimes where the lava comes up and you, the, the smoke clears away and you can look right in there and you can see the lava. And there's this, there's this inner bowl uh, and then there's this hole and then the, you can see the lava in there. And so, so we like to take people there. And so we've gone there and we've seen scientists, when the lava gets risen, uh, scientists kind of going down in their like metal suits, repelling down into the inner bowl. That was pretty neat. We, we got to see people sending instruments across the mouth of the volcano, kind of taking temperatures. And so, so it's really neat to see that because normally you only see that like National Geographic, but here it is happening. But it's also very reassuring because do you know what they used to do when the lava rose? They used to take women and children and throw them into the volcano to appease their demon god. And then what happened? A priest came, puts up a cross, and says, look, we don't do that anymore. And so then when the lava started to rise, people started looking for other reasons. Well, if it's not the hag goddess that's causing the lava to rise, why is it rising? And that's why you see all these uh, scientific breakthroughs happening in monasteries and in Christian circles because their minds are freed from the superstitions and now they're looking for other explanations for it. Christianity is a force of good in the world. There was a study that came out uh, that I read recently, and it was looking at former colonies, places that used to be uh, you know, colonized by European countries. And they said, why did some former colonies succeed and turn into well-functioning countries, and why are some of them still struggling and, and still having a lot of problems? And what they found was the only difference between the ones that were succeeding and the ones that weren't. And this, this wasn't like a Christian study. This was a secular study. The only difference was that the ones that were succeeding had received Protestant missionaries doing the work of evangelism. That was the difference. 
Why was that such a big difference? Because Christians come in, they want you to read the Bible, so they, they, they teach you to read. A lot of times they were creating the alphabets for the first time so they could produce the Bible in that. They're teaching you logic to understand the Bible. But even more than that, you got the Holy Spirit working in people's lives and changing them, changing their expectations for their political leaders, changing their expectations for their business partners, for everything. And what we see is this reality that as Christ reigns, it pushes back darkness and he's putting all his enemies under his feet. Quien vive? I do that again. Quien vive? A su nombre. See, and why, why do we say glory? Why is it glory? It's glory because he lives, right? Because he lives. Because God the Son comes down as a man, right? Fully God, fully man. He had to be fully man because only man can pay for another man's sin. Fully God because only God's blood is valuable enough to pay for the sins of the world. He lives a perfect life. He goes to the cross. And on the cross, he takes out sin and he gives us his righteousness, right? It's our shame, and he gives us the right to be called children of God. And he goes on the cross, and he dies. But he didn't stay dead. He rose on the third day, he ascended into heaven, and now he sits at the right hand, reigning spiritually through the church until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Quien vive? A su nombre. We have this. This wonderful assurance of victory. I mean, we see Christ, the only way for salvation. We see that, that Christ is reigning now. And we know that Christianity is a force of good in this world. And it reminds me a lot of Joshua. So we have this promise here in 1 Corinthians that he's reigning. He's going to, to liberate all the, un- all the occupied territory. And we have to respond to this promise of victory, and that, just like Joshua did. You don't remember the story of Joshua? Uh, the people of Israel come out of Egypt, and they're about to go in the promised land, and God comes to, Moses, or to Joshua and says, Moses is dead. And Joshua's like, oh my goodness! And God's like, don't worry about that, that's old news. Uh, and so, <laughs> go and take the land. He said, be strong and courageous, because I'm with you, I've given you the land. And Joshua had to respond to that promise in faith. Be strong and courageous. And I think the application today is in light of God's promises that we're victorious. How are we called to be strong and courageous? Where are we called to step out? Where are you called individually to step out in faith? Maybe it's in your giving. Uh, nobody likes it when a preacher talks about money. Um, but I'm a missionary, and so I can do whatever I want. Um, I won't be here next week, so, you know. Uh, sometimes there's misunderstanding of what happens when you give. So if you were to write a million-dollar check to Grace today, uh, that doesn't mean that Justin gets, you know, a new Rolls Royce. That's not, that's not the way it works in the PCA. Sorry, man, you know, like, uh, but, uh, you know, everything's, you know, there's oversight from the presbytery. So what would that mean? It'd mean more churches planted, more staff to do gospel ministry, push back the, the darkness uh, in, in Memphis and around here. It, it would mean, it'd be more missionary sent. That's what it would mean. Maybe God's calling you to step out in faith in your service to the church and volunteering. Maybe you don't want to make commitments. But here God is called to say, be strong and courageous. I've given you the victory. Maybe it's in evangelism. Right? Maybe you feel timid to share your faith at work or in your neighborhood or in your family because you know people are going to look down on you. Here's the reality. Maybe they look down on you. Maybe it's saved. Right? I mean, that's also 
a possibility. We're given this promise of victory. So maybe God's called to step out in evangelism. Maybe it's in missions. Maybe there's people here who, who God's calling to the missions field. And you say, ah, that can never be. I'm an accountant. You say, well, hey, maybe God's calling you to Nicaragua. Maybe you're here and God's calling you to be bold and courageous and take the first step of faith and repenting of your sins and giving your life to the Lord. And maybe you're here because it's a cultural thing to do or because your wife made you come or whatever, and you say, you know what, I will never give over control of my life to anything else. I'm, I'm in control. And maybe you'll come here and you'll look nice on Sunday and say, I'm never going to give control over, of my life to God. And the call here is to be strong, bold, and courageous, stepping out in faith and knowing that Christianity and Christ is, is a good Savior and he's going to save you from your sins. He's going to give you new life and eternal life. Whatever it is, whatever steps God calling you, is calling you to take, you can take those steps and you can feel victorious today because Christ is the only way to salvation. Because Christ is reigning now and because Christianity is without a doubt a force of good in this world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your bountiful blessings on us. Lord, we thank you that uh, you looked down on us and you saw us in sin, but instead of just punishing us, you came down and you died for us. You made a way to save us. And then you invite us into the work that you're doing in the world to liberate occupied territory and to bring your good news to everyone. Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the boldness and courage to take whatever steps of faith you want us to take this week. In Jesus' name, amen.